Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian book reviews contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name is Peter Rose, and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or $50 for print plus online. Tim Bonahady is one of Australia's leading environmental lawyers and cultural historians. He has previously traced connections between art and national mythologies in books such as Images in Opposition and The National Picture. In his latest work, Two Afternoons in the Kabul Stadium, Bonahady turns his attention to Afghanistan, unpicking the fabric of contemporary Afghan society by following closely the warp and weft of its visual culture, from women's fashion and photography to the famous war rugs. In today's episode, Morag Fraser, writing in the wake of the Taliban victory in Afghanistan, reviews two afternoons in the Kabul Stadium. She immerses herself in Bonahady's intriguingly tangential and complex history. Morag Fraser, a former chair of ABR, has been writing for the magazine since the 1990s. Morag Fraser. In 1994, the Afghan Mujahideen commander, Abdul Haq, rebuked the United States for forgetting about Afghanistan once the communist-backed government of Mohammad Najibullah had fallen in 1992. Haq predicted that Washington would rue its neglect. Maybe one day they will have to send in hundreds of thousands of troops, he told the New York Times, and if they step in, they will be stuck. We have a British grave in Afghanistan, we have a Soviet grave, then we will have an American grave. Hark's prediction had some of the force of a malediction, and it echoed the oft-quoted claim that Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. Whatever one makes of his militant rhetoric, Abdul Haq did capture something of the repeated cycles of violence that had afflicted his country for almost a century and damaged other nation-states that attempted to shape or aid, exploit or influence Afghanistan. Abdul Haq was killed by the Taliban in 2001. He was 43. Mohammad Najibullah was murdered and hanged as a brutal exhibit in Kabul in 1996. He was 49. The famed Northern Alliance guerrilla leader Ahmad Shah Massoud was assassinated in 2001, just two days before the Twin Towers were destroyed in New York. He was 48. I note the ages of these Afghan men. All of them, had they lived, would be younger now than US President Joe Biden. I note them to emphasise the contemporaneity of Afghanistan's conflict and of its suffering. It's been called the Forgotten War. It's temporarily back on our minds and in our media because of the horrifying August scenes at Kabul airport and here in Australia because of the unresolved matter of alleged unlawful killings by Australian Special Forces in Afghanistan. But we will forget again. We already have. And even if some of us don't put Afghanistan behind us completely, 
Australia's attention will soon turn inward and perhaps vindicate Jonathan Swift's bleak pronouncement. In all distresses of our friends, we first consult our private ends. Tim Boney had his unusual book, Two Afternoons in the Kabul Stadium, is a vivid prompt to memory. Published just weeks before the Taliban stormed into Kabul again, brandishing their newly scavenged armoury, it provides an intriguingly tangential and complex history, no predictable parade of powerful men rising and falling in bewildering sequence, rather by looking through clothes, carpets and the cinema, that's his subtitle, Bernie Hody brings a lens to Afghanistan, sometimes wide-angled, often intensely individualising. His approach is intentional and ambitious. I'm quoting him now. Sustained attention to the visual also creates a new kind of narrative, he argues. Material otherwise neglected is here centre stage, revealing how the visual has been pivotal not just to Afghanistan's internal politics, but also to the international response to it. This book provides a new way of understanding Afghanistan, as well as a new way of seeing it. Large claims, and his readers will decide if they're borne out by the book, or whether indeed they even needed to be enunciated. Bernie Hady is clearly focused on the people of Afghanistan, on their art, on the way they dress, manufacture, trade, worship, marry, entertain, play sport or not, and the way they exert influence. Wars rage, but Afghan lives have to go on in their distinctive ways. Bernie Hady demonstrates over and over what he terms the heft of the visual he catalogues the visual images that linger and define, for good and for ill. He understands that the powder-blue anonymity of the Shadari was a gift to international photographers, perhaps, but not the full story about Afghan women. He's also an acute scrutinizer of Afghanistan's representation of itself by itself. More than 23 national flags in the 20th century alone, for example, and of the way it's represented by outsiders. Bunny Hadi is also a debunker of myths, those promoted by Afghanis themselves and those adopted by various international leaders for strategic reasons or out of romanticising ignorance. His copious sources yield many examples, but this, from President Ronald Reagan, takes some beating. To watch the courageous Afghan freedom fighters battle modern arsenals with simple handheld weapons is an inspiration to those who love freedom. Abdul Haq, the freedom fighter, saluted here by Reagan, ordered his forces to fire unguided rockets and explode bombs into civilian crowds, killing many, including children, in the process. And like so many of the Mujahideen warriors championed by Washington during Afghanistan's 1980s Russian occupation and its aftermath, Haq was simply too fluid in his allegiances ever to be neatly slotted into a US binary of cowboys and Indians. 
Boniherdy understands this and scrupulously documents the moral ambiguity, the fog, that always obscures the truth of war. Now, in 2021, the departing Western Allies have used the improvement in education and employment opportunities for Afghan women as one of the badges of honour earned during the 20 years since President George W. Bush launched Operation Enduring Freedom. And listening now to members of the Australian forces who worked with Afghan individuals and organisations during deployment in Afghanistan, you wouldn't begrudge them credit for genuine humanitarian endeavours. Their vocal support for Afghan people who became friends and colleagues may be one of the few saving graces of this long, tragic episode. But as Boniherty shows, the emancipation of Afghan women and girls did not begin in 2001, and it was never simply an offshoot of Western Enlightenment. To bring order to his welter of documentary material, Tim Bonihady selects two symbolic events. Both took place in Kabul's Ghazi Stadium. In 1959, during independence celebrations, the Afghan government under then-Prime Minister Mohammad Dag Khan organised an unveiling. A small group of upper-class women appeared in the Royal Pavilion of the Ghazi, wearing Western dress and simple headscarves, a symbolic departure from the enveloping shadaris that had been required dress, at least for women who could afford them, since a very brief flurry of modernisation in the late 1920s under King Amanullah and Queen Saruya. The unveiling gesture was visual but low-key, lest it inflame ever-present male and religious tensions, and Daoud allowed no filming, no photography. Forty years later, in 1999, and also in the Ghazi, a woman known as Zarmina was executed by the Taliban in front of a crowd, principally of men, plus some international journalists who were allowed to be present but again, bidden to take photographs. A small group of women from the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan were also present. Using the literal cover of her shadari, one of them videoed Zarmina being shot in the back of her head by a man using a Kalashnikov. Bernie Hattie tracks what happened to that video it was initially deemed too shocking for Western viewers to bear. He tracks it over many pages, detailing the ways it was used as revelation and as propaganda. And he concludes with this. London's Daily Express thought it very difficult to watch and not think. It's straightforward. We bomb the swine. Tim Bunny Hady is an everyman historian with very diverse interests. His previous book was The Enchantment of the Long-Haired Rat, A Rodent History of Australia. In his introduction to Two Afternoons in the Kabul Stadium, he owns that a small rug dominated by Kalashnikov sparked my interest. Back in 2003, collaborating with art historian and artist Nigel Lendon, 
Bernie Hady curated an exhibition of Afghan war rugs in Canberra's Drill Hall Gallery. Like many who saw it, I've never been able to forget it. Neither its searing beauty nor its historical burden. In July this year, again at the Drill Hall Gallery, Lendon and Boney Hady mounted a second exhibition of war rugs titled I Weave What I Have Seen, The War Rugs of Afghanistan. It was open during those few serene Canberra weeks that preceded lockdown and before the Taliban takeover of Kabul. The catalogue carries these words, written in Iran by Safa Ali. This was in 1993, a refugee rug weaver. This is what he wrote. I want to show something of the war in the hope that even later people will be touched by it and won't simply forget it. How can rugs carry such a freight of meaning? How transcend the utilitarian, commercial or even the propaganda purposes to which they've been put? In Two Afternoons, Bernie Hady notes that Soldier of Fortune magazine advised its readers that if they wanted something martial yet practical for peaceful use as a souvenir of a war, they should buy a Kalashnikov mat. Some war rug weavers, as Bernie Hay records, were directed in their designs by agents of commerce or politics, but many, some of them women, did what they have always done, painstakingly translate the world as they experience it in an ancient craft of pattern, symbol and colour. At that second exhibition, I was reminded constantly of the way in which the animated borders of the great bio tapestry subvert every dictate of state or patriotism and use simple embroidery stitches to expose the arbitrary violence of war and to enchant. Bernie Hattie's book is dense and often harrowing against its detailed background of dynastic tribal and international politics, matters of fashion that might be seen as trivial, Queen Soroya's 1920s hairstyle, for example, or the miniskirts in which young Afghan women were famously photographed by Laurence Brune in 1972, Hamid Karzai's caracal hat, or Ahmad Shamasud's signature parkour. You could buy one of those in Australian craft shops in the 1980s. These instances, not trivial, they all tell tales, often cautionary tales. Miniskirts provoked acid attacks on revealed female skin. Hats were invariably political, just as the Taliban's black turbans are today. Bernie Hattie quotes American theorist W.J.T. Mitchell's observation that wars are being fought over images, with images, by means of images. Bombardment does not come only with shells. No one commissioned Francisco Goya's Disasters of War etchings. That's not even the title Goya gave them, and they were not published until years after his death. But they remain one of the world's most potent visual reckonings with war 
and with human violence. The images and events Tim Boney Hardy documents and chronicles are potent, but also ambiguous, multivalent. Ahmed Shah Massoud was assassinated by young suicide bombers posing as journalists, and they hid their explosives in a camera. In a world dominated by images, we will need books like this to help us unpack their meaning, to arm us against their seductions, and perhaps prompt rejoicing if and when they embody integrity and hope. Thanks for listening to the ABR podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 per month for digital. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Jack Khalil and Clancy Balin, who edit the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.